Welcome to Tom Bradford's Torah Class, an in-depth Old Testament Bible study that's brought to you from a Hebrew Roots perspective. This week's lesson is week number 13, Daniel chapter 5. We're going to get historical and detailed today. And you're going to hear a lot of new names, at least probably new to you, and probably for the first time today. So have your pens and pencils handy. Now, as we ended up our study of Daniel chapter 4 last time, the promised divine punishment had come upon Nebuchadnezzar for his refusal to acknowledge Yehovah as the Most High God. That's the El in Hebrew, the Ele in Aramaic. This is the God who rules over all kingdoms, has the power to give and take away dominion over them. Please understand that concept of one God over everything was entirely foreign to the world at that time. A single God who ruled over all kingdoms on earth was completely counter to the universal belief that each nation had its own unique God or gods that controlled that nation's fate. A God's sphere of influence was generally only within the borders of that nation that he or she belonged to. So it was asking a lot of Nebuchadnezzar to accept that one God ruled over all nations, all kingdoms on earth, and that that one God was the God of his captive Jews. So let's reread a portion of Daniel chapter 4. Open up your Bibles to the book of Daniel chapter 4. If you have a complete Jewish Bible, we're going to start on page 1105. Daniel chapter 4, we're going to begin at verse 30. Within the hour, the word was fulfilled. Nebuchadnezzar was driven from human society. He ate grass like an ox. His body was drenched with dew from the sky. His hair grew like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. And when this period was over, I, Nebuchadnezzar, I lifted my eyes towards heaven and my understanding came back to me. I blessed the Most High. I praised and gave honor to him who lives forever. For his rulership is everlasting. His kingdom endures through all generations. All who live on earth are counted as nothing. He does what he wishes with the army of heaven and with those living on earth. No one can hold back his hand or ask him, What are you doing? It was at that moment that my understanding came back to me. And for the sake of the glory of my kingdom and my majesty and splendor also came back to me. My advisors and my lord sought me out. I was reestablished in my kingdom and to my previous greatness even more was added. So now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the king of heaven. For all of his works are truth, his ways are just, and he can humble those who walk in pride. What we see happen is actually a well-established pattern. It is that while God might delay a judgment from the time that he gives the warning of impending catastrophe until it actually occurs, when it finally does happen, 
It usually comes with the breathtaking suddenness of a collapsing dam. So in verse 30, when we hear that the threatened judgment happened to the king, the idiom within the hour isn't meant to say within 60 minutes, but rather something happened immediately. We learned in verse 25 that it was a year, 12 months from the time that Daniel gave the interpretation of the tree dream to Nebuchadnezzar, a warning that included the ominous ultimatum to acknowledge Jehovah as the God Most High or else until it finally came about. Thus we see that, for example, even though there were centuries of warning and prophecy concerning the piercing, the death of Messiah, of his burial, and of his resurrection, it all came to fulfillment in not more than 72 hours. And we have every reason to assume that all the expectations that believers have held for so long about the end times with the return of Christ and the war of Armageddon and the 21 prophesied judgments poured out by God's angels upon the earth and all of its inhabitants, the setting up of Messiah's earthly invisible throne in Jerusalem. It's all going to occur so rapidly that people will have little time to comprehend what is actually happening to the world. It's my contention that since the seven biblical feasts are prophetic of the sevenfold mission of Christ and that the prophetic messages of the first four feasts have already been fulfilled, that the entire sequence of final events is expressed by the last three feasts that occur in the fall season of the year are going to occur from beginning to end in but 22 or 23 days. And if Messiah's worshipers are not prepared to know what to look for, we're going to be in shock. We're not going to be able to recognize recognize it for what it is and we're not going to be able to offer assurance to others. It's interesting that the narrator of this chapter Nebuchadnezzar switched from the first person I, me to the third person he, they beginning in verse 25. And it continues in that grammatical voice until verse 31. This is another of those issues that I told you I'd tell you about when we encountered them. Issues that Bible critics say proves that Daniel's a fraud and not a very good one at that. Critics say that in a narrative to switch from first person to third person and then back again isn't very good literary form. And it shows that probably several hands were involved in crafting this deceptive fiction known as the book of Daniel. But notice the occasion upon which this switch occurs. It's at the time that the king's mind becomes an animal mind. It's at that moment that the king as narrator speaks of himself now in the third person. Then he switches back to the first person after the seven units of time have passed. He regains his human mind. 
from Nebuchadnezzar's perspective, that poor, mentally ill creature that eats grass like an ox isn't really him. The king of the world. At least not anymore. It's kind of an out-of-body experience. It's not unlike how a rehabilitating drug addict, when the drugs aren't controlling them any longer, will speak of him or herself when they were still under the power of the chemicals and doing things so foreign to how they see themselves now. It's as though there's two different people. One they recognize, one they identify with, the other one they just don't. In verse 31, the ordained period of time has ended and Nebuchadnezzar's human nature and senses are restored to him and the first thing he does is to look heavenward. I think we ought to take from this that despite the seven times, whether that's months or years or seasons, that he had become mentally deranged, the memory... The memory of what happened to him and why was at the forefront of his mind. Like finally waking up from a bad dream that he couldn't seem to escape, the reason for his being trapped in this condition was implanted in his consciousness. He was aware of it all along. His instinctive reaction was to praise God. This same God that had taken his mind away from him and now given it back. Because he also knew that part of that package was that he would be restored to his kingdom. He'd get his old life back. Now some commentators say that Nebuchadnezzar's speech verse 32 means that he converted. He became a believer in the God of Israel. Others like C.F. Keel and Calvin say no he didn't. And you know what? I agree with them. That said, there is insufficient information to be absolutely certain either way. But Nebuchadnezzar has made a noticeable progression in his understanding of who the Most High is. He acknowledges the Lord's utter sovereignty and omnipotence over the entire earth. And interestingly, the king still doesn't seem to know this God's formal name. Or at least he won't call him by that name. But he does add a new title to the mix in verse 33 as the king refers to Jehovah, God of Israel, as the king of heaven. Now we shouldn't take this pious-sounding statement as any more than Nebuchadnezzar's horrific experience convincing him to take a wider view of God's sphere of influence as compared to the other gods. Saying king of heaven is about as useful or articulate as referring to Jehovah as the man upstairs, who is neither a man nor is he upstairs. And yet, however Nebuchadnezzar mentally pictures the Lord, it seems to be sufficient to accomplish whatever it is that the Lord had intended in him. Now I want to repeat something I said earlier in our study of Daniel. 
Nebuchadnezzar was not a particularly wicked man in God's eyes. In fact, he was a useful servant. And some rabbis compare him to the Pharaoh of the Exodus. But I I think that's not only too harsh, but it's far off the mark. The Pharaoh was used for destruction of his own nation and as a ransom for God's people. He was a stubborn, evil man whom God used like a hammer on an anvil. And thus far we found nothing about Nebuchadnezzar that has him taking a particular dislike for Jews. In fact, he has employed four Jews that we've been introduced to, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, to the highest offices in his capital, in his empire. I mean, that he ordered death in the furnace for three of them wasn't a racial issue. It was the same order for everyone who would not bow down to that golden statue. We don't hear of any kind of Babylonian mistreatment or barbarism aimed at the Jews as we do in the story of Esther, for example. In fact, as we get to the time of the Persian conquest of Babylon and then the Persian king's urging of the Jews of Babylon to return home to Judah, guess what? Only a relatively few went. The rest, by their own choice, stayed. Now this is hardly the action of a people who feel persecuted and oppressed and anxious to get away. And in a few hundred more years, surprise, Babylon becomes one of the three greatest centers of Judaism along with Jerusalem and Alexandria, Egypt in the world. Now how's that for an irony? Let's read Daniel chapter 5 together. Open your Bibles to Daniel chapter 5, still on page 1105 if you have a complete Jewish Bible. Belshazzar gave uh, Belshazzar the king gave a great banquet for thousands of his lords. And in the presence of the thousand he was drinking wine. And while tasting the wine, Belshazzar ordered that the gold and the silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had removed from the temple in Jerusalem be brought, so that the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines could drink from them. So they brought the gold vessels which had been removed from the sanctuary of the house of God in Jerusalem, And the king and his lords and his wives and his concubines drank from them and they drank their wine and they praised their gods made of gold and silver and bronze and iron and wood and stone. And suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared. They began writing on the plaster of the palace wall by the lampstand. And when the king saw the palm of the hand that was writing, the king's face took on a different look. As frightening thoughts rose up within him, his hip joints gave way. His knees started knocking together. And the king cried out to bring in the exorcists, the astrologers, the diviners. The king said to the sages of Babel, whoever can read this inscription and tell me what it means will be dressed in royal purple. You'll wear a golden chain around your neck and be one of the three men ruling the kingdom. But although all the king's sages came in, none could read the inscription or tell the king what it meant. 
Then King Belshazzar became terrified. His face turned pale. His lords were thrown into confusion. Now at this point, the queen mother, because of what the king and his lords were saying, entered the banquet hall. And the queen mother said, May the king live forever. Don't be scared by your thoughts or let your face be so pale. There's a man in your kingdom who is in the spirit of the holy gods. And in the days of your father, he was found to have light and discernment and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods. King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, the king, your father, made him chief of the magicians and the exorcists and the astrologers and the diviners because he was found to have an extraordinary spirit, knowledge, discernment, the ability to interpret dreams and unlock mysteries and solve naughty problems. He is called Daniel. But the king gave him the name Belshazzar. Now Daniel, some, uh, now have Daniel summoned, and he'll tell you what this means. Well, Daniel was brought into the king's presence, and the king said to Daniel, "Are you Daniel, one of the exiles from Judah, whom the king my father brought out of Judah? I've heard about you." that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that you've been found to have light and discernment and extraordinary wisdom. Now the sages and the exorcists who were brought in to me so that they could read this inscription and tell me what it means, they couldn't interpret it for me. However, I've heard that you can give interpretations and solve naughty problems. Now if you can read the inscription and tell me what it means, you'll be dressed in royal purple and wear a gold chain around your neck and be one of the three men ruling the kingdom. And Daniel answered the king, Keep your gifts. Give your rewards to somebody else. However, I will read the inscription to the king and tell him what it means. Your Majesty, the Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar your father the kingdom, as well as greatness and glory and majesty. Because of the greatness he gave him, all the peoples and nations and languages trembled with fear before him. Anyone he wanted to, he put to death. Anyone he wanted to, he kept alive. Anyone he wanted to, he advanced. Anyone he wanted to, he humbled. But when he grew proud and his spirit became hard, he began treating people arrogantly. So he was deposed from his royal throne. His glory was taken away from him. He was driven from human society. His heart was made like that of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys. He was fed with grass like an ox. His body was drenched with dew from the sky until he learned that the Most High God rules in the human kingdom and sets it up over whomever he pleases. But Belshazzar, you his son, have not humbled your heart, even though you knew all of this. Instead, you've exalted yourself against the Lord of Heaven by having them bring you vessels from his house. And you, your lords, your wives, your concubines, you drank wine from them. Then you offered praise to your gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron and wood and stone which can't see, they can't hear, they can't know anything. Meanwhile, God, who holds your very breath in His hands, to whom belongs everything you do, you've not glorified. This is why He sent the hand to write this inscription. And the inscription says... Mine, mine, tekel ufarsin. This is what it means. Mine. God has counted up your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel. 
you are weighed on the balance scale and have come up short. Peres, your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Then Belshazzar gave the order. They clothed Daniel in royal purple, put a gold chain around his neck, and proclaimed of him that he was to be one of the three men ruling the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, the king of the Costim, king of the Chaldeans, was killed. We're not going to get very far into this rather long chapter today, and you're going to quickly discover why that is. Now, you may not have been aware of it, but the opening words of the first verse of this chapter have created enormous controversies and discord among Christian and Jewish commentators for centuries. And those discordant words are, Belshazzar the king. Now, how much trouble could those three simple words possibly cause? Plenty. We're going to camp here for a while because there's a lot to explain that will help us understand not only, not only the remainder of the book of Daniel, but also why many modern Bible commentators have shown little respect for this important book of Scripture. Now to begin with, <clears throat> some Bible versions have completely confused Belshazzar the king with Belshazzar, who is Daniel. The two names are identical, except for the T, the Tet, that is inserted after the letter L, the Lamed, in Daniel's Babylonian name. So I'll begin by saying these are definitely two different people. Now, until recently, the belief was there was no king of Babylon, not even a person in Babylonian royal history named Belshazzar. He was just a fictionalized name playing a character in the fictionalized book of Daniel. Imagine the surprise when a catch of clay tablets was found in an archaeological dig that not only used the name Belshazzar but essentially verified the biblical account of him. So now that we've established scientifically and biblically that he was real, that he was royal, that ought to end the skepticism as concerns his mention in Daniel, right? Oh, not so fast. The next issue concerning what it said about Belshazzar begins in Daniel 5.10 and goes through verse 12. Let's reread that. Daniel 5, we're going to read 10 through 12. Reread it. At this point, the queen mother, because of what the king and his lords were saying, entered the banquet hall. And the queen mother said, May the king live forever. Don't be scared by your thoughts or let your face be so pale. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And in the days of your father he was found to have light and discernment and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods. King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, the king your father, made him chief of the magicians, exorcists, astrologers, and diviners because he was found to have an extraordinary spirit, knowledge, discernment, the ability to interpret dreams, unlock mysteries, solve knotty problems. He's called Daniel. But the king gave him the name Belshazzar. Now have Daniel summoned, and he'll tell you what this means. 
Here's the issue that's caused and still causes many historians, Bible commentators, to discount these passages. A Babylonian queen appears in the narrative that the complete Jewish Bible says is the queen mother, but that's just a guess. And she advises Belshazzar to call for Daniel to come and decipher some mysterious writings. And she explains to Belshazzar, some say this is her son, that he should do this because his father, Nebuchadnezzar, employed Daniel, made him chief of the Chaldean Magical Arts Guild, because he was so amazingly accurate in his predictions and in his interpretations of dreams and visions. So, what's the problem here? Well, it's because this Belshazzar could not have been Nebuchadnezzar's biological son. As we're told in other scriptures, that Nebuchadnezzar's son, Evel Merodol, succeeded him. We find this in 2 Kings 25 and in Jeremiah 52. Further, the Uruk king list that was discovered agrees that it was indeed Evel Merodach who immediately succeeded his biological father, Nebuchadnezzar. Then at the end of chapter 5, in the last verse, what happens to Belshazzar? He dies. And immediately in chapter 6, the Medes and the Persians take over the Babylonian dynasty. So, we have several conundrums that includes the reality that the prophet Jeremiah said that Nebuchadnezzar's dynasty would be a three-generation dynasty. Himself, his son, his grandson. Here's what Jeremiah 27, 6 and 7 says. For now I have given over all of these lands to my servant Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babel. I have also given to him the wild animals to serve him. All the nations will serve him and his son and his grandson until his own country gets its turn, at which time many nations and great kings will make him their slave. And Belshazzar doesn't seem to be any part of that three-generation dynasty, even though this queen says Nebuchadnezzar's his father. Then there's the issue that the Uruk king list and other tablets found call Belshazzar the son of the king, but they never call him the king. Yet he is referred to in Daniel as King Belshazzar and Belshazzar the king. From this, the Bible critics feel vindicated that what they had concluded all along was correct. That whoever this Jewish fake was who penned this book was a pretty poor historian. But now, in the year 2013, it seems that this mystery of who Belshazzar was and what his relationship to Nebuchadnezzar was and when he ruled and what his relationship to the queen in our story was can be pretty well nailed down. Let's begin with Nebuchadnezzar, who became the king of Babylon in the year 605 B.C. 
And he was the king that brought Babylon to its height of glory as the greatest empire the world had ever known. He ruled for 43 years and he died in October of 562 BC. His son, his biological son, Evel Merdoch, you notice here it says Emel. This is just an alternate spelling for the name and Marduk is um, uh, just a a phonetic way of saying Merdoch. They're the same words, identical. His son, Evel Merdoch, took over from him. He ruled for less than two years. He was murdered in August of 560 B.C. So we have now the first two generations of Nebuchadnezzar's three-generation dynasty established. Nebuchadnezzar himself, succeeded by his son, Evel Merodoch. And here's where things start to get tougher. The next king of Babylon was Nergal Sharausur, also known as Nereglissar. By the way, when we see the Akkadian word Shara used in a name. I don't see it up here, sorry. Nope. Uh, Shara, S-H-A-R-R-A. When we see that word used in a name, it's meant to denote that that person is a king. So the next king after Avel Merodach was actually his brother-in-law. This fellow, this Neroglesar, was married to a daughter of Nebuchadnezzar, Avel Merodach's sister. And while one could quibble a little bit about it all because of the lack of a blood relationship, the reality is that Nergal Shara-Usur was indeed part of the royal family. He was Nebuchadnezzar's son-in-law, so he could rightfully be considered the third king of Nebuchadnezzar's dynasty. Bah! But wait a minute. Can he be considered a son or a grandson of Nebuchadnezzar? Because that was part of Jeremiah's prophecy. And by the way, there is no evidence that Avil Merodoch was murdered by Nergal Shara-Asur, but it seems that because of the great benefit he received by it, he was hardly an innocent bystander. So Nergal Shara-Asur managed to survive about four years. And then he died in April of 556 BC. The young son of Nergal Shara-Usur succeeded him in May of 556 BC. Labashi Marduk seems to have survived for only about three to nine months before he was assassinated. And from this point forward, there seems to be no way that any following king can be seen as being legitimately part of the royal family of Nebuchadnezzar. This was because the next king of Babylon was a fellow named Nabu Naid in Akkadian, better known as Nabonidus in English translations. And Nabonidus was chosen from among the ranks of military leaders to be the new king of Babylon. And Babylon records make it clear that he was the son of an Aramean, in other words, a Syrian man, named Nabu Balasu Ikbi, who had in some unknown way served in the royal court 
of the Nebuchadnezzar dynasty. So as you can see, the genealogical or even the familial chain to Nebuchadnezzar is broken here. Now it gets even more complicated. So bear with me. Nabonidus had a son named Belshazzar, or better known to us as Belshazzar. So we finally found him. The Belshazzar of Daniel chapter 5 and in later chapters seems to be the last in the line of Babylonian kings, but he had no direct genealogical or royal family ties to Nebuchadnezzar's family. So, back to Daniel chapter 5, verses 10 through 12. How is it then, if that's the case, that the queen speaks to Belshazzar in verse 11 and says, There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy gods, and in the days of your father he was found to have light, discernment, and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods. King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, the, co- the king, your father, made him chief of the magicians, exorcists, astrologers, and diviners. So, here we have this unnamed queen saying clearly that Belshazzar's father is none other than King Nebuchadnezzar, which, as you can see, is historically impossible. Are the Bible critics right? Have we got a major problem here that punches another hole in the book of Daniel? Let's see. One of the great Bible commentators and linguists of the 19th and 20th centuries was an academic named R.D. Wilson. This man could read and speak 60 languages, including the most ancient biblical languages. And in a book that he penned entitled Studies on the Book of Daniel, he spends quite a bit of time explaining that there were at least eight ways that the term Abba, Father, is used in the Bible and what each of these ways meant within the ancient Middle Eastern cultures. First, Father meant the direct biological father of his children, the common way we would all think about it. Second, father meant the biological grandfather of his children's children. But it also could mean the adoptive male parent of a person not of his own biological family or even of his own tribe. It could mean a stepfather, the husband of a woman who had been previously married and had children by another man. But it is also regularly used to simply mean an ancestor the father of a tribe or a clan and so on or so on and so forth and it can mean father in the sense of a, of a founder or a patriarch like Abraham the the founder of the Hebrew race who is regularly called father Abraham by Hebrews even to this day in some cases father is merely a term Uh, to refer affectionately to a king. The point is this. The term father in the Bible can be used in a host of contexts. And only sometimes does it actually mean direct biological father of his children. In fact, the problem that most Gentile Christian laypersons and pastors and some commentators find with biblical genealogies 
is that they aren't aware of the many ways that the term father is used in the Bible and how generations are often skipped in the biblical genealogies making the grandfather the father of the next generation. So we have two choices in front of us concerning this Queen's statement about Belshazzar. Either the writer of Daniel was wrong and he really thought that Belshazzar was Nebuchadnezzar's biological son or he was merely using a common and standard convention of that era and attaching to Bel, attaching uh, Belshazzar to Nebuchadnezzar as being his father in the sense of Nebuchadnezzar being the revered patriarch of the Babylonian Empire and especially of its kings. Further, this chapter is in Aramaic and it continues to offer matters from a Babylonian perspective. So the answer to the question seems pretty clear when we have all the information. And what this also tells us is that there was a jump in time from the last verses of chapter 4 when Nebuchadnezzar has regained his human mind to the first verse of chapter 5 and Belshazzar is now the king of Babylon. Or better, a number of Babylonian kings had succeeded Nebuchadnezzar between the last verse of chapter 4 and the first verse of chapter 5 even though not very many years had passed. It was only perhaps 12 years from Nebuchadnezzar's death until Belshazzar was ruling over Babylon. So the three generation dynasty that God had promised to Nebuchadnezzar before Babylon was going to tumble into disarray, fall to the Medes and Persians, that dynasty was over before the opening verse of Daniel chapter 5. So with chapter 5, we are actually in the final stage of the Babylonian Empire's existence. And Yehovah is in the process of turning Babylon over to another nation in order that they be punished. Now to put things in yet another perspective. Of the 70 years that the Jews were exiled to Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar ruled for the first 43 of them. The several other Babylonian kings and the first Persian and Median kings all together ruled the remaining 27 years of the 70 year exile. But let's deal with one final critical issue about Belshazzar before we move on. Was he really a king? Or just the son of a king, that king being Nabonidus. Well, here's what occurred. Nabonidus was a military man. <clears throat> so he spent the first 12 or 13 years of his reign doing what he did best, leading military excursions, most of them on the Arabian Peninsula. First, he campaigned extensively in the Transjordan, secured that area, then spent a 10-year stint establishing outposts and fortresses in the heart of Arabia. 
Now why he did that's not clear, and we're not going to bother to speculate because ancient records don't really address the matter head on. But consider this. He was the king of Babylon. He was gone far away, going to many places that were long way off, leading an army for years at a time. Who was going to run things at home? Do you give the job duties of the king to a management team of loyalists? His answer to the problem was to point his son, Belshazzar, as his surrogate back home. After all, Nabonidus needed someone he could trust who wouldn't try to make the empire his own during Nabonidus' extended absences. Rule by committee wasn't going to work for the many years he'd be away and, and, and the temptations for one of them to want to rise up and try to take over the throne, it would just be too enormous. He fully intended to retain his title of king. Someday to settle back down, sit on Babylon's throne as a more typical king. So we see the Babylonian records refer to Belshazzar not as the king of Babylon, but rather as the son of the king. So, why in Daniel is he called King Belshazzar and Belshazzar the king? Why is Belshazzar said to be the one power when the Persians and the Medes conquer Babylon? When Babylonian and Sumerian records make it clear that Nabonidus, his father, had returned from years in Arabia and once again settled in as king of Babylon. We can only speculate, but in the end, it's really just a matter of ancient Middle Eastern custom and some common sense. While it may not have been officially declared a co-regency, that is, a king and his heir ruling together in cooperation, which, by the way, is what David and Solomon did for a number of years, it was a de facto co-regency between Nabonidus and his son Belshazzar. And in a co-regency, both men are given the title of king, even if the junior one's title was kind of an honorary title. And he held that until the senior king died and the junior king became the sole king. That's how it worked. It would be natural that Belshazzar would sit on the throne, live in the palace, be addressed as king during the many years that his father was away. And during the first 13 years of his reign, Nabonidus was apparently only rarely at home. So from the perspective of the royal court, and especially of a courtier like Daniel, the only person he knew of as ruler of Babylon during those years was Belshazzar, certainly not his father. Of course Daniel knew this arrangement. This wasn't strange to him. Records show that the various high government officials that Belshazzar appointed during those first 13 years that he co-reigned with his father while his father was gone were kept on when his father returned for the final four years of his reign before the Medes and the Persians finally captured Babylon. These same records show that Nabonidus was captured by the Persians and he wasn't killed. 
There is no specific mention in Babylonian records of what happened to his son Belshazzar. So there's no reason to think that the book of Daniel isn't correct when it states that Belshazzar was killed when, the, when Babylon was conquered, but there is no mention of his father, the senior king, Nabonidus. Because in fact, Nabonidus had learned of the coming invasion. He had escaped to a place called Borsippa, which is about 13 miles south of Babylon, and apparently left his son, Belshazzar, to see to the defenses of the city of Babylon. And then Daniel tells us that Belshazzar was killed as a result of the invasion, but no circumstances are given surrounding it. So the book of Daniel actually tracks perfectly well with Babylonian historical records regarding all the kings of Babylon. To quibble over whether Daniel, or in the Bible critics' viewpoint, the anonymous writer of Daniel, should have used the term king, referring to Belshazzar, is like arguing whether a former president of the United States ought to retain the title after he's no longer in office. It's simply a long-standing tradition in America to do that. There's no right nor wrong to it. But you can bet that some historian a thousand years from now is going to look back at American history and wonder how so many men could hold the title of president at the same time. They're probably considered an error. Some fake wrote it. Because it doesn't seem logical. So back in Daniel verse 1. I hope now you can see that what is happening is taking place in the last few years of Babylon's existence as an empire. And that King Nabonidus was apparently away. And he was satisfied to let his son, Belshazzar, continue to run the day-to-day operations of the empire in his stead. So now we have some context for what's about to happen. Belshazzar throws a party. It said that 1,000 people were in attendance. Now, doubt this is a round number. There would have been important people in his government, some heads of state, some wealthy aristocrats would have come to this party. And there's no reason to see this as an exaggerated number. We have several records of kings having parties of this size and some considerably larger. In fact, when Alexander the Great was married, the official records say that 10,000 people were invited. Well, the last half of verse 1 says that he, the king, drank wine before the thousand. Our complete Jewish Bible says the king drank wine in the presence of the thousand, which is close but not quite the same. The idea is the king sat at his own royal table and it sat at an elevated platform so that his regal stature could be honored so that he could be seen by the crowd. But then verse 2 says that the king did something that he'd lived to regret. He did something that would turn out to be as foolish as it was arrogant. He called for the gold and silver goblets and other vessels that had served in the temple in Jerusalem. And they would be defiled. And they would be used for the common purpose of drinking wine in order to get drunk at a party. That's where we'll begin next time.